we are continuing a series that we began last September, about the end of September, and uh, we will be continuing this subject until we finish this particular series. And uh, we are going to be studying tonight in the book of Acts, um, for that is where we're uh, presently considering the subject of discipleship. We'll say a little more about that in just a moment, but let's have a word of prayer together. We thank you, Father, after a busy summer that you brought us all back safely. We just thank you for the, the things that we all learned in uh, some of our time away, vacations and speaking uh, opportunities and opportunities to minister in other ways. And we just thank you for bringing us back tonight. And we just pray that this, this beginning tonight and not only here in this room, but in the uh, children's classes as well, this will just honor your name, that everything that is done, that we might learn and grow and be better equipped to do the work of the ministry, will give you the praise in Christ's name. Amen. Now, if you're like my wife, you hate reviews, but uh, I think that it's probably necessary to kind of put the pieces of the puzzle together. Uh, and review just briefly where we've been and where we're going. May I just say that uh, there are three parts to this series. The first part we completed last year and started on the second part. We are talking about discipleship as we saw, the, saw it in the life of Christ in the Gospels. Talking about what discipleship is, really honing in on the, on the aspects of discipleship as taught in scriptures. A lot of uh, false concepts today concerning what discipleship is. I think perhaps the greatest error involved in discipleship is the idea that I disciple someone to follow me. Uh, that is, that's an error. That's wrong. We disciple others to follow Christ. Otherwise, they will de be dependent upon us and uh, not learn to be dependent on Jesus Christ. We want to teach people to be independent of us, but totally dependent upon Jesus Christ. And so discipleship really is more than, than merely pointing others uh, uh, to, to what we do, uh, though it may involve that. It's primarily to point to what Jesus Christ is and to who he is and what he has done for them. We'll come back to that in a second and just review it briefly. But first of all, we, we are talking about discipleship as seen in the Gospels. And then we're talking about discipleship as it was carried out in the, in the book of Acts. That is, by the disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ. What was, the, what was the outgrowth and the function of the discipleship that Jesus Christ had? For if we disciple people to Jesus Christ, then there will be many of the same results and same success in the lives of those disciples. So it's helpful to know what it is exactly that they are to do. And then we are going to have a section, after we've completed this section in the book of Acts, we'll have a section where we are going to talk about specifically how we can take a person from A to Z in a discipleship process. It's very, very important that we put the thing in shoe leathers, that we put it in overalls, because this is where the rubber meets the road. This is the place where we really have to have something in the way of tools so that we know how to take a person who is not discipled, a person who perhaps has just received Christ or a person that we have brought to Christ, and uh, then to go from there and to lead him step by step. What are some of the elements that we should use, some of the things that they should know 
Uh, and uh, you might be interested to know that there are a lot of things that in most books on discipleship are really ignored. And uh, we want to, to share with you some of those things and try to help you in presenting a program of discipleship. So that's the next thing on the agenda after we finish this part. Now let's go back for a second and talk about what we saw in the Gospels so we can put the thing in perspective. First of all, we saw the definition of discipleship. And after going through the meaning of the word and all of the places that was used in the New Testament and all of that, we came up with this definition, that a disciple, disciple of Jesus is one who is a follower of Jesus, a learner from him, his apprentice, whose conduct, philosophy, and way of life are three things, completely identified with Jesus, who is continuously instructed by Jesus, and who is consistently involved for Jesus. That's the definition of discipleship. Now, if you don't have that down, uh, it's in the notes, and we're providing notes week by week to keep you up to date, uh, usually giving you the notes the week after we've studied a particular uh, passage or thought or concept. So that was the definition of discipleship. Then secondly, we saw that there's a difference between the discipleship of Jesus Christ and the discipleships, other discipleships that we saw in the New Testament. There was, for instance, those that were disciples of Moses. That had its limitations. There were those that were disciples of, Pharisee, of the Pharisees. That obviously had its limitations. And there were those that were the followers, the disciples of John the Baptist. But we saw that in spite of the, the superior discipleship that there was in regard to John the Baptist, that when Jesus Christ came on the scene, John had to say, he must increase, I must decrease. All he could do is point them to Christ and say, behold, the Lamb of God that taketh away the sin of the world. I must decrease, he must increase. We saw that Christ's discipleship ministry was superior to that of any of the others because of his atonement as Savior. He was the only one that could save. The law couldn't save. John the Baptist and the baptism of repentance couldn't save. The Pharisees and their system of works couldn't save. Jesus Christ was the only one who could provide atonement as Savior. Secondly, his authority as teacher. And though John the Baptist spoke with great authority, and obviously so did Moses, and the Pharisees in their own way did as well, yet the authority of Jesus was not like that of the scribes and the Pharisees. He spoke as one that had authority. Jesus Christ said, all authority, all exousia, all powers given unto me in heaven and in earth. And then he could command the disciples to go. And so therefore his authority is teacher. Thirdly, his association is friend. And whereas the, the followers of the others, the Pharisees and Moses and John the Baptist, uh, knew their leader, none of them came to any place of intimacy on the same level that we can with Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ has associated with us, not only as our Savior and Lord, but as our friend. And then finally, his activity is bridegroom. And that's a beautiful story and illustration because John the Baptist basically said, I'm just the best man. He is the bridegroom. And nobody pays any attention to the best man at the wedding. You pay attention to the one who is the groom, even Jesus Christ himself. And so therefore, again, we don't disciple people. We lead them to be disciples of Jesus Christ. And we need to recognize that in every way and in every case that he is the one that is superior, the only one that is worthy of discipleship, and that's discipleship with a difference. And then we saw, thirdly, 
its demands. And we took you to five key passages that talk both about the demands of discipleship and some of the dividends that were involved. Taking up our cross and following him, being willing to leave father and mother and so on and so forth. All of those things involved in those five key passages on the demands of discipleship. Discipleship has its demands. You cannot be a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. That is, in the sense of discipleship, and still carry around all of the trappings of those things that were a part of your past life. The fourth thing, then, was its distinctives. And the distinctives of discipleship were three in number. In fact, three specific times where it says, if this is true, then you are my disciples. First of all, if you continue in the Word. Secondly, if you love one another. And thirdly, if you bear much fruit. Those three things were stated specifically to be distinctives of discipleship. And then as well, we talked about it, the dividend of discipleship in particular, the dividend of both earthly compensation and eternal compensation that comes. The sixth thing that we saw was its development, that is the development of discipleship. We saw how Christ began with his disciples on a level of servant to master relationship. And that was the focus of that kind of relationship was on obedience. Nothing about knowing what the master's doing or anything about that. Simply a matter of obeying because he's the master, recognizing that he's, he's the boss. Then the second level of discipleship, which is really a higher level, was the family relationship where he said, look, if you're my disciples, if these are my followers, they are my mother and my brethren and so on. And he talked about a, a family relationship. And the focus there is not so much on obedience as it is on family likeness. And the third area was friend-to-friend relationship, where he said, I no longer call you servants. I'm going to call you friends. Because a servant doesn't know what his master's going to do. But I'm going to let you know. I'm going to clue you in. And you see, in our lives and in our relationships with Jesus Christ, we need to realize that there are times where we don't understand what's happening. We just obey because he's boss. That's it. There are times where it's simply a matter of a response from the heart to want to be like Jesus Christ. And so we do certain things and don't do certain things just because of family likeness. But there also is that intimate relationship on many things in our life and experience as disciples of Christ where Christ clues us in as to what he's doing, just like he did with Abraham in uh, his pre-incarnate appearance to Abraham, where he said, I'm going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. Can I do such a thing without letting Abraham know? Of course I can't. I've got to tell Abraham. That's a friend relationship, a phileo relationship, where the two are on the same wavelength and thinking alike. And Christ said that he would no longer call us servants, but call us friends. And the focus there is on intimacy. And so that's the development of discipleship, constantly developing process in our relationship with Christ. And more and more, we need to know him and know his word so that the friend relationship can be enhanced. And then the last thing we saw was the design of discipleship. We went to the Sermon on the Mount. We showed how there was both a horizontal and a vertical relationship that is emphasized there and how it intertwines And uh, though we didn't study that in great detail, we learned a great deal, I believe, concerning the design of discipleship, that which is expected of followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now then was the first part of this matter of discipleship. We covered that 
during most of last year. But now, after we did that, we went to the book of Acts. And we began to see discipleship in the church age. We began with an introductory message, and we gave something of the evidence of the success of the disciples' ministry, and then something of the explanation of why they were indeed successful. We saw that all of those things that were involved in the disciples' ministry are true today. That is, the overall, the broad pictures. We don't have any less of the Holy Spirit today than they had. He is the same spirit, and he's doing a work. We don't have any less. In fact, we actually have more, if you want to be technical about it, of the word of God. We don't receive direct revelations now, but we do receive that which is a completed revelation, a completed canon. We even have more than they had in the early church. And so therefore, the same things that were true and caused their success and caused them to fill all Jerusalem with their doctrine, the same conditions can be found today. And it's no tougher today than it was in that day. And so therefore, we we said, if that's true, then we need to understand discipleship as it's given historically in the book of Acts. We determined that God doesn't necessarily repeat experiences, But there's a pattern for a disciple's involvement in a successful proclamation of the gospel. And that's still valid. And so even today, we can penetrate the darkness of our society with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Then we set out to study 11 concepts. We got through the first two. The third we'll at least get started on tonight. The first was the Spirit and the disciples. And we studied concerning the work and the ministry of the Spirit of God in the book of Acts, particularly as it related to its effect upon the disciples. And then secondly, secondly, we talked about salvation. That is the, the doctrine of soteriology as taught in the book of Acts. We mentioned at that time that that does not give us a complete picture of soteriology or salvation because uh, the book of Acts is only recording what took place, in some cases, leaving great gaps. But uh, the epistles fill in the whole doctrine, particularly the book of Romans, fills in the doctrine of salvation. But nevertheless, we saw how, how in the 15th chapter of Acts, in the council in Jerusalem, how the disciples came together and how they found agreement on a very difficult issue. And the difficult issue is a difficult issue even today. And it has to do with the, with the matter of salvation by faith and faith alone, totally apart from works whatsoever. We looked there and looked at some other passages to show the nature of salvation as taught by the disciples in the book of Acts. Now, let me go through the rest of these as to what we are going to be covering so that you have them in your mind and uh, you'll never know because we never know how far we're going to get. You'll never know which week we're going to have it. I wish I could say that in the next uh, nine weeks we were going to cover these nine topics, but that's impossible, so we won't do that. But tonight we're going to talk about something intricately related to the matter of soteriology or salvation, and that's that of soul winning, soul winning and the disciple in the book of Acts. And then service and the disciples, stewardship and the disciples, separation and the disciples, society and the disciples, steadfastness, being grounded, and the disciples, schism, 
or schism, however you want to pronounce it. You hear it pronounced differently, but the idea of division and the disciples. Suffering and the disciples. And finally, strife and the disciples. So we're going to cover quite a few things, and we hope it will be profitable to you. Now, the purpose that we have tonight is to talk about the matter of soul winning and discipleship. Let's realize something and put this into perspective a bit. Salvation is by grace, totally apart from works. And it is the Spirit of God who must draw the sinner to Him. The disciple's role is simply to be an instrument by which we can draw others to Jesus Christ. To be an instrument, to be a testimony, to be a witness. A witness is one that is, the Greek word is martyris, which is the word from which we get our word martyr. Originally, a martyr was not someone who died for his faith, but someone who witnessed. But so many of them that witnessed, uh, told what they'd seen and heard, died for their faith, that the word became, to, it came to mean the idea of being martyred or to die or to witness by your death, uh, your faith in Christ. But... The concept and the idea of being a witness and being a testimony is far from a, a term that we use today, and you'll probably hear me use it, and that's because it's so ingrained in our minds. But we, we hear uh, people speaking of leading people to Christ. That's why I say it's so ingrained in our minds it's hard to use anything else. But let's make sure we understand what we're saying. To lead someone to Christ is, is kind of like, you know, you've got a rope around their neck and you're dragging them in. You're leading them in this sense. You are, you are actively involved in making sure that that person comes to Christ. And the teaching of the New Testament is very clearly this. That we are an instrument who witnesses. And over and over again in the New Testament, it's the idea of a witness. And in the process, people come to Jesus Christ. Who leads them to Christ? It's the Spirit of God who leads them to Christ. What do we do? We are simply an instrument. That's all. Being used of God. I like the, the terminology better to say we point people to Christ. We're like a road sign that points the way. This is the way. Walk ye in it. Turn not to the right hand or to the left. That's much more accurate, biblically, than to say we lead someone to Christ. Another term that is correct is to say we win people to Christ. Because it says in the, in the book of Proverbs, he that winneth souls is wise. And we are able to win people to Christ. But again, our winning people to Christ is not a matter of putting the rope around their neck and dragging them. But rather, it is a matter of being a witness and a testimony in a winning way that will make the gospel attractive to them so that as the Spirit of God draws them, they'll make that decision for Jesus Christ. Remember, the Holy Spirit has come to convict the world of three things. Of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment. Of sin, because they believe not in me. It's sin that the Holy Spirit works on is not the sin of uh, uh, immorality or the sin of uh, idolatry or any of those baddies. 
The sin that he, that he concentrates on in seeking to bring a person to Christ is the sin of unbelief, the sin of not, obey, not believing in Jesus Christ. That is the sin, of sin because they believe not in me, of righteousness because I go to my Father. The concept being that uh, the, the, the Lord Jesus Christ was the only one who could go into the presence of God without sacrifice for himself. He is the perfect standard of righteousness. And uh, the Holy Spirit will convince people that Christ is the only way. That he is the only one who can take his righteousness and credit it to our account. And so of righteousness, because I go to my Father. And of judgment, because the prince of the world is judged. Judgment is not a matter of judgment for doing this or that or the other thing, these little things that we call sins. It is a matter of judgment because we have failed to reach the righteous standard. It's on that basis Satan is judged. It's on that basis we will be judged if we are not in Christ. So the Holy Spirit knows what he's doing. He's got his act together. If, if Christians would just learn to cooperate with the Holy Spirit in regard to this, then uh, we would get a lot, lot further in the matter of pointing other, pe other people to its knowledge of Jesus Christ. So you see, the Holy Spirit draws them. We simply present the gospel as a witness, as a testimony being used of God in the matter of a, uh, a, an instrument that God can use. Now, before we get into the texts, and there are a number of them we want to touch on, let me cover a couple of preliminary things. As you survey the book of Acts, just, just seeking to discover the concepts of soul winning, you'll notice that no two conversions took place in exactly the same way. It's interesting, isn't it? You do not have a duplication of ministry and method in the historical record of what took place in the early church. Each message is distinct in mass evangelism. Each presentation is distinct in regard to the, uh, the, the presentation of the gospel. I'm always uh, interested, you know, in the fact that everybody's got their pet method of trying to point people to Christ. And they've got their little four spiritual laws or the ABCs of the gospel or, you know, 110 other things. And uh, one verse that I know a lot of people like to use is the 16th chapter of Acts, verse 31, where Paul says, Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved in thy house. Great message. Wow, that's a great salvation verse. Do you realize that Paul led many people to Christ? As far as we know, that's the only time he ever used that verse. I mean, if that is the right way to lead a person to Christ, then why didn't he use it every time he talked to someone about Christ? Why didn't he say to Festus and to Agrippa, to all of these, and by the way, as far as the record is concerned, as far as the record in the book of Acts is concerned, the Apostle Paul tried to witness to a lot more people than he led to Christ. I mean, he, you start counting his record, some people have notches on their Bible for every soul they win, you know. You'd have to call Paul a failure if you're going to count it that way. Because Paul did not, in the book of Acts, in the historical record, did not point that many people to Christ individually and personally. There were a number that came as a result of mass evangelism, obviously, but as far as record of him dealing with people, there wasn't all that much. And so therefore, uh, he talked to a lot of people, 
But as far as we know, Festus didn't come to know Christ. As far as we know, Agrippa didn't come to know Christ. As far as we know, uh, though we know some in Rome came to know Christ from the book of Philippians, uh, yet uh, I think his target was Nero. I think that's who he was after. It's why he had such an urge to go to Rome. As far as we know, he never got to Nero, though he may have given all kinds of witness that direction. See, So there are many, many failures if we call that failure. But see, Paul's responsibility was not to convert people. His responsibility was to point the way, and he did that. And in that way, and that's the biblical way, he was an overall success in his ministry. So he could say at the end of his life, I fought a good fight. I've kept the faith. Now before someone jumps on that, let me say, I am aware that you can go into the epistles and you can start naming them. My son in the faith, Timothy. And then he starts naming a bunch more. And these people were his converts. Obviously, he led a lot of people to Christ individually and personally. But as far as the Acts record is concerned, if you're going to judge on that basis, and that's the historical record, then Paul would have to be deemed a failure. But now remember, though, that God is very creative. And he used unique and distinctive methods. And we cannot say that there is any a priori right way to point a person to Christ. Don't get in a rut. Realize that God wants to use you with your own abilities, your own personalities, and your own knowledge of Scripture. And just because someone else said this is the way to lead someone or to point someone to Jesus Christ. Maybe that's the problem. They were leading them. You need to point them. (laughs) But just because someone said this is the way to do it, don't fall into the trap. If you find a method that works once, don't be surprised if it doesn't work the next time. Just don't, don't find yourself in a, in a habit, in a rut, of just using the same method and uh, go into the thing with all kinds of methods and means in your mind and then reach into that catalog and pull out the one that's appropriate for the moment and use it. But I just wonder if one of us We're called of God to meet an Ethiopian eunuch out in the wilderness on the Gaza Strip. And the man said, I am reading in Isaiah, and I don't understand who this is talking about. You know what some of you would do? You'd say, well, now let me give you the four spiritual laws. God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. He said, what is that? Forget it. Now, wait a minute. I'm I'm in Isaiah. You know, you ought to be able to point a person to Jesus Christ in any book of the Bible where they happen to be reading. That'd be a good project for you. So the person comes and says, I'm reading in Obadiah. You say, you know, Obadiah's got a great message. You know, see the message of Obadiah? We'll see it Sunday night, okay? <laughs> I was just living in that today and I thought, good grief, this is super. This is just great. But you see, the, the, the glory of it all is this, that God works with people individually and personally. He does not work with people as, as, a, as a mass or as an ethnic group or something else. And you have to be able to discern in your soul winning where a person is. Because God never uses the same method precisely in the same way. I think we could probably have a lot of fun tonight saying, 
how did you find Christ? How did you find Christ? How did you find Christ? And go around the room. And we would be amazed to find that probably none of us found Christ in precisely the same way. And it's, it's, a, it's a thrill to realize that when man's methods fail, that God never fails. Because God wants us to come to him. He's not willing that any should perish. And so God dealt differently with Cornelius than he did with Saul of Tarsus. The conversion of the Ethiopian eunuch was quite different from the Philippian jailer. As you go through the conversion record in the book of Acts, you find this to be true. Now that's the first thing. Secondly, we're not going to deal in this study with the concepts of mass evangelism. One of the exciting factors in the book of Acts is that factor of mass evangelism. You know, 3,000 a day of Pentecost, a few days later, 5,000. Boy, that's exciting. And that's really great because that got, got the church off to an entirely uh, new and fresh start as far as the, uh, the ministry was concerned with this small group of 120 disciples. And suddenly, there was, and there was a lot of personal evangelism going on in the midst of the mass evangelism. But what we want to do is uh, concentrate on individuals in the book of Acts. In some cases, we are not specifically told that they were converted. In other cases, we are. But uh, I think it's good to just look at some of these people. And I think what we can do is this. If you've got a piece of paper, you might want to jot this down. First of all, we'll, have the, we'll give you the scripture, and then we'll talk about the individual. That is, the person, who the person is. And then thirdly, we'll talk about the instrument that God used. That is, the person who was involved in pointing this one to Christ. And then the method. And finally, the result. Okay? And we'll just go through these, and we may not uh, complete this. We may, if, we, if the time holds up for us here, we may be able to complete all of these that we've selected. And there are six of them that we want to consider. And then four very important lessons that we need to learn. All right. So first of all, let's go to the third chapter of Acts. Now this is one of those where it doesn't specifically say that he made a decision for Jesus Christ. It is probable, however, with the circumstances happening as they did, that he became a believer. And so we're in Acts chapter 3, and we are in verses 1 through 11. Now Peter and John went up together into the temple at the ninth hour of prayer, being, uh, at the hour of prayer being the ninth hour, that's 3 o'clock in the afternoon, the time of the evening sacrifice. And a certain man, lame from his birth, we're not given his name, but he is the lame man. The people involved, the instruments, were Peter and John. And it says that he was carried, whom he had laid daily at the gate of the temple, which is called Beautiful. That's the Nicanor Gate, a magnificent Corinthian brass gate that was, was uh, facing east out toward the Kidron Valley. The gate Beautiful to ask alms of them that entered into the temple, who, seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, asked an alms. And Peter, fastening his eyes upon him with John, said, Look on us. And he gave heed unto them, expecting to receive something from them. He, he was a beggar, of course, and uh, he often, uh, as he begged, people would give him something. And so 
uh, they, he, he just looked at them expecting that they were going to give him something. Here's what Peter said. Did you know this is a salvation message? Here it is. Then Peter said, Silver and gold have I none, but such as I have, give I thee, in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. Now, what we have here as a method then is supernatural power. Supernatural power. Healing. May I say that this man and any person in the nation of Israel or involved with them as proselytes would understand the term in the name of. They made a great deal of name. And the name spoke of the character of the individual. It was a way of saying, I I command you to stand up and walk in, in all that Jesus Christ of Nazareth is. All that he is. And so you see, the method was that of healing, but in the name. In the name of Jesus Christ. Now, remember that this was what was being preached previous to this time on the day of Pentecost. And uh, the, the whole of the city was astir. After all, 3,000 people had come to know Jesus Christ. And the result was that all the city knew, and this beggar certainly knew, who they were talking about. But it says, Then they took him with the right hand, lifted him up, immediately his feet and ankle bones received strength, and he, leaping up, stood and walked and entered with them into the temple, walking and leaping and praising God. Now I think that one of the results was he praised God. That was one thing that took place. And of course, after that, you know what happened. The people said, what in the world's happening? This man's been out here, he's been lame, and all the rest. And uh, they, they knew that something had taken place. And so they, they asked, uh, uh, they ran together unto them, in verse 11, in the porch that is called Solomon's, greatly wondering. There's great wonder now. And Peter saw it, and he used the opportunity now for some more mass evangelism. So there was a witness. Now, also, with that witness, there was the opportunity to preach. And a good preacher never misses a chance like that. And then, 5,000 people were converted. Day of Pentecost, 3,000. Now, 5,000 came to know Jesus Christ. And chapter 4, verse 21, after being thrown in, uh, in or after being forbidden to preach in the name of Jesus, notice that term again, and all of that. And Peter and John saying, we cannot but speak the things that we've seen and heard. It says in verse 21, that when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding nothing, how they might punish them, because of the people, for all men glorified God. For that which was done. Now, it's fascinating to me, just in this first illustration of personal evangelism in the book of Acts, to note that it began with supernatural power, but that it ended where God wants all things to end, and that is with Him being glorified. And it's interesting and fascinating to know that God got the credit and God got the glory. And so that, of course, is the ultimate goal that we have in all of our witness. Now, that's the first case. 
And I think that it shows that God will use unusual methods in some cases to bring people to himself. All right? Now, the next one is in Acts chapter 8. Acts chapter 8. There's some implied conversions of individuals previous to this and some of the other chapters in between, uh, but uh, uh, there's not any detail given. The next one that's given to us with any great detail is in Acts chapter 8, verse 26. And an angel of the Lord spoke unto Philip. Now, who is Philip? Let's put him down here because he is the instrument. Okay. If you go back to the sixth chapter of Acts, you find that Philip was one of the deacons. It's interesting to note that chapter 7 is taken up of the, the story of Stephen, who was one of the deacons. He was one who was called upon to wait on tables so that the apostles could give themselves more fully to the study of the word of God and to prayer. And yet in the seventh chapter, the one who was the first martyr, that is one who gave his life for the sake of the gospel, was Stephen, who preached a powerful message, and he was a deacon. I think we should get it out of our heads that it's the responsibility of the man who is who is paid on the staff of the church to be the one who ministers to the people. We get that idea sometimes, you know. I get paid for being good and you're good for nothing. And, uh, you know, and people have that idea. And uh, yet the scripture makes it clear that we are equipping the saints for the work of the ministry. The apostles had done their job. They had trained Stephen. His job in the church was that of waiting on tables, but the chance he got to preach the gospel, he didn't let it pass by, and he gave them a tremendously powerful message. Philip, on the other hand, was also a deacon. His primary responsibility was that of waiting on tables. But he went down to Samaria, and God ministered in revival using this man. Now, where do we get this separation between clergy and laity? It's ridiculous. Stupidity. It's the most inane thing in all the world. The only reason I'm on a higher level than you are is because it's better for communication. Not because I'm over you in that sense. Or that I'm better than you. Or that I stand above you. The concept and the idea is that when a person has a responsibility to teach the word, He teaches it. But that could be the responsibility incumbent upon anyone in a given set of of circumstances. The question I always have at a time like this is this. If you were called upon, would you be ready? You see, you have a responsibility now to be equipping yourself so that when you're called upon, and God grant that you have that opportunity, you will be ready to give an answer to everyone concerning the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. Now, how do we get on that? Well, anyway, Philip, that's it. Philip was a deacon. He is, is, in this sense, a layman, all right? Don't like the term, but it communicates. A layman, but ministering in a powerful ministry to the glory of God. 
All right? What happens? It says that the angel of the Lord said, Arise and go toward the south onto the way that goeth down from Jerusalem unto Gaza. That was a fortress city on the road to Egypt. It was destroyed in 96 B.C. And uh, uh, so it was already destroyed at the time the Ethiopian eunuch uh, came there. But the road ran right through the ruins. And so the Ethiopian eunuch is on his way toward Egypt and ultimately to go into southern Africa or the uh, south of Egypt in Africa, which was at that time called Ethiopia. And uh, he's on his way. And he arose, that is, Philip did, and went, and behold, a man of Ethiopia, a eunuch of great authority under Candace, which was a title, the queen of the Ethiopians, all of southern Africa, who had charge of all her treasure, and had come to Jerusalem to worship. Now, you see, we have now the eunuch. Now, the eunuch, of course, was one who had been castrated for the purpose of uh, freeing him from any temptation because he was around royalty. He was considered to be a very trusted person. He was the treasurer. He was in charge of all of the stores of the royalty of all of southern part of Africa. And he was a proselyte to the Jewish faith. How that happened, we're not told. But uh, just remember that uh, as a proselyte, or as one that had come to worship in Jerusalem, uh, probably for uh, the day of Pentecost, or, uh, and had stayed over, or perhaps some other feast day, uh, here he was, coming to Jerusalem, he had come from, uh, coming from Jerusalem, where he'd been worshiping, he was returning and sitting in his chariot, and read Isaiah the prophet. Now, again, remember, Isaiah the prophet, is part of the Old Testament. You know that. What in the world are you going to do when someone is there reading the Old Testament? By the way, I should put this down. Acts 8, 26 through 40. Eunuch is the individual. Philip is the instrument. What is the method? Notice. Spirit of God said to Philip, Go near and join thyself, or glue thyself literally to this chariot. And Philip ran there to him and heard him read the prophet Isaiah and said, notice the lead question, understandest thou what thou readest? Do you understand what you're reading? <laughs> he said, in typical Jewish fashion, I need a scribe. I need someone who is a teacher of the law. I need someone to teach me. How can I accept some man should guide me? And he besought Philip that he would come up and sit with him. Apparently Philip gave him the impression that he might be such a man. The place of the scripture which he read was this. He was led as a sheep to the slaughter, and like a lamb dumb before his shearers, so opened he not his mouth. Incidentally, probably the best passage of scripture that I know of in talking to a Jewish person. Isaiah chapter 53. Tremendous passage. Jesus Christ just crawls out of every part of that passage. You could almost go eeny, meeny, miny, moe in the book of uh, Isaiah and get Christ. He's all the way through. He's born of a virgin. He's wonderful counselor. And so on. All of those things. And you just find him all the way through the book. But Isaiah 53 just absolutely oozes with Christ. And so, 
In his humiliation, his judgment was taken away. Who shall declare his generation? For his life is taken from the earth. And the eunuch answered Philip and said, I pray thee of whom speaketh the prophet this, of himself or some other man? And Philip opened his mouth and began at the same scripture and preached unto him Jesus. Now, the, the, the method that is used here is an educational method. It is called apperception. Apperception. One of the best methods of soul winning is to use this particular method. You know what it means? It means to take a person where he is and lead him to something else. What do you do with a child? You, you start with something he knows. And then on, based on what he knows, you teach him something new. Now he's got another frame of reference. And you can do that by contrast. You can do that by, by illustration. But you take him from what he knows to what he needs to know in order to be educated. Use it all the time in teaching. And that's all that Philip did here. The man was in Isaiah 53. God had prepared him in this way. And again, he didn't whip out his four spiritual laws and say, here they are. Got to lay them on you. This is the only way I know how to lead a person to Christ. But he didn't see that it was important that he lead a person to Christ. The important thing was that he point him to Christ. And so therefore, he said, do you understand what you're reading? The man read. So who's he talking about? And Philip said, I just happen to know. He was talking and prophesying about one who would come, one who would die, one who would give his life. Such a person did come. Such a person did die. Such a person did give his life. But he rose from the dead. He is the very Son of God. And by faith in him, you can have eternal salvation. He used the apperception in Old Testament truth and pointed him to Jesus Christ. What was the result? Well, it says that he believed. It says he was baptized. And boy, I'll tell you, Philip made sure he believed before he would baptize him, too. If, you, if you're baptized without believing, then baptism will only do one thing for you. Get you wet. That's all. Won't do another thing. But if you believe and are baptized, then it confirms that decision that you've made and is a testimony and illustrates that which Christ did for you. He believed, he was baptized, and he went on his way rejoicing. Now, we're not given here in the book of Acts any other information, but there is good information to indicate that uh, probably the Ethiopian eunuch returned to his place of influence and was a witness for Jesus Christ. Because coming out of that area of Ethiopia, not only was there established a strong church early in church history, and we have you know, evidence of this, but also there were a number of, of those that came from that region of Af Africa and were active in the first and second centuries in churches elsewhere. And so therefore this man was indeed one who was truly brought to Jesus Christ. Again, different method. Different means. And in some ways a different result. It was a very private thing. Two men. There was no crowd to react 
positively or negatively to what happened here. Not only that, but I've always been impressed with the fact that God called a layman away from revival blessing to talk to one person about Jesus Christ. I wonder if we'd have the faith to follow that command. But God, I'm needed here, don't you see? I wonder if we would have faith enough to believe that God wanted us to invest our life in building into the life of one other person. Now, sometimes God does call us to that. Even as ministers of the gospel, it's hard sometimes to discern when we should leave the multitudes to talk with the individual. Christ often did that. But he didn't always do that. It's interesting. So you have to be led of the Spirit of God in that regard. All right. Now, a third passage is in the next chapter. Let's look at Acts chapter 9, verses 1 through 31. This is really an unusual one. And Saul. Oh, there's our individual right there. Saul of Tarsus. Yet breathing out. And actually, it says breathing out. But the term literally is breathing in. And it's, it's like a war horse smelling battle. It's, it's the same term was used for that kind of a situation. Uh, Saul has tasted blood with the martyrdom of Stephen. And now he wants to get the church. And by the way, a fascinating study is to see the various places in the book of Acts where Paul talked about his persecution of the church, as well as in the epistles. Some fascinating study there. But he breathed out threatenings and slaughter against the disciples of the Lord. He went to the high priest and desired of him letters to Damascus to the synagogues, 140 miles, uh, about a week's journey on foot that, that they would take. Uh, and uh, you, what, what they would actually do is, is go up almost to the top of Mount Hermon and down that other side uh, into the valley beyond Damascus. They wanted to find those synagogues. And if he found any of this way... That's a term talking about Jesus Christ being the way, the truth, and the life. Found any of this way, whether they were men or women, that he might bring them bound unto Jerusalem. That is for the trial. And as he journeyed, he came near Damascus. And suddenly, on that road to Damascus, there shone round about him a light from heaven. And he fell to the earth and heard a voice saying unto him, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? And he said... Who art thou, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom thou persecutest. It is hard for thee to kick, kick against the goads or the ox goads. So the instrument that God used was Jesus Christ. <laughs> Let me ask you. You think it's possible for a person to come to know Jesus Christ without any other human instrumentality? Well, now, Paul was a rare case. We don't often, particularly in the book of Acts, we don't see any other instance where God used this method. But let's never forget that God can use whatever he needs to use to bring any person to Jesus Christ. God's a sovereign God. It is his primary purpose to work through people. We're not told why Paul, of all people, was one who came to Christ without any human instrumentality apart from the human God-man, Jesus Christ. But that's the way it happened. Again, a different method. 
And notice the, what the, the, kind of, the kind of thing that he used in this direct confrontation. And that, of course, is where Christ himself zeroes in on the individual. He talks directly about the fact that when he persecutes the people of Christ, he is really persecuting Jesus Christ himself. And what does he do? He, trembling and astonished, said, Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? And the Lord said unto him, Arise and go into the city. It shall be told thee what thou must do. And so on. He went, of course, to Ananias. Can you imagine this poor, timid Ananias? A disciple, it says specifically, a disciple at Damascus. A follower of Christ. One who's under marching orders by Jesus Christ. And the Lord says to him, Guess who's coming to your house today? <laughs> Saul. And you know the reputation of Saul had gone before him. And yet at the same time, it says that he, he opened, his, opened the door and welcomed him in. And uh, it said, uh, of course, he had to go, to the, had to go through Damascus. Uh, the, the road straight ran east and west in the city of Damascus. And they inquire at the house of Judas for one called Saul of Tarsus. For behold, he prayeth. <laughs> and hath seen a vision in a man, uh, in a vision, a man named Ananias coming in and putting his hand on him that he might receive his sight. Ananias answered, Lord, I've heard by many of this man how much evil he hath done to the saints of Jerusalem. And here he hath authority from the chief priests to bind all that call on thy name. But the Lord said unto him, Go thy way, for he is a chosen vessel unto me to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how great things he must suffer for my name's sake. And Ananias went his way, entered into the house, putting his hands on him, said, notice the faith now, Brother Paul, Brother Saul, the Lord, even Jesus, that appeared unto thee in the way that thou camest, hath sent me, that thou mightest receive thy sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately there fell from his eyes as it had been scales. By the way, that's a medical term. means the taking off of cataracts. And he received sight and arose and was baptized. When he had received food, he was strengthened. Then was Saul certain days with the disciples who were in Damascus. Immediately he preached Christ in the synagogues that he is the Son of God. And all that heard him were amazed and said, Is not he, this he that destroyed them who called in his name in Jerusalem and came here for that intent that he might bring them bound unto the chief priests? Now between verses 21 and 22, the Apostle Paul went into a sort of an interlude of isolation, a period of time, according to the book of Galatians, where he was taught of the Holy Spirit and uh, received uh, even greater visions. And then it says in verse 22, Saul increased the more in strength and confounded the Jews dwell at Damascus, proving that this is the very Christ. And the Jews tried to kill him. You know, Saul had a real problem. Uh, he, he was being sought by the Jews to kill him. The Christians wouldn't accept him. If it hadn't been for Barnabas, the son of consolation, then who knows where Saul would have ended up. God used instruments, notice, to follow up. It was Jesus Christ that led him by direct confrontation. But then God used instruments to follow up. Ananias, Barnabas, and others that, that helped him along the way. Now, the result, of course, was that he preached... He believed, I should say. He even said, Lord, I'll do what you want me to do. He was ready to go right from that time. He was baptized. 
and he preached. And so once again, we have the conversion of one that had a special, a special vision and even a personal confrontation by Jesus Christ himself. Now, you can see again, we've seen three people individually and personally converted. We've seen three different methods. We've seen God use three different people, even to using Jesus Christ himself in this very rare case. And the, 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 the pattern of the book of Acts, as we go next week to these, these other things, these other conversions, you'll see that this is what God does. And we need to learn, as disciples of Jesus Christ, as followers of Christ, we need to learn the kind of creativity that God gave his disciples in the early church. Let's not get into a rut. Let's be those that point people to Christ in the way that the Lord leads us, when he leads us, as he leads us. And may it be to his glory and to his grace. Now next week we'll see three more illustrations. And then we'll see four lessons that we need to learn from this passage, some of which we've already touched on as we've gone along. But we'll kind of focus in on four lessons before we go on to the disciple and service. Let's pray together. Father, we're so grateful to you for giving to us not only the doctrines that we need to know in order that we might certainly know what we should believe, but also have given us historical examples of how some of these things were carried out in the lives of men just like us. We're glad, Lord, that these men were men of like passions, like as we. We're so very, very thankful that you have given us the opportunity, just being a witness, to make disciples of all nations. And we pray, Father, that you will help us to, to realize how vital we are. We know that there are some that are in this room tonight that just sort of feel like they're on the shelf, as though there's nothing really for them to do or to accomplish. Lord, we know that's not true. You have a plan for their life, and it involves exciting things. Help them be attuned to your plan. And then, Father, we pray that we will be numbered among those that you've called wise because we win souls. We pray that we will be instrumental in pointing multitudes to Jesus Christ as individuals, personally, and in a mass way as well. We'll praise you in Christ's name. Amen.